Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 37 and read through verse 24 of chapter 22. Hear God's word. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make, that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of your father, God of our fathers, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, up to this word, they listened to him. 
Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who wrote these words, who inspired Luke to put pen to paper and inspired the very words he wrote on that paper, um, we pray that you would now be at work in them and through them. Use them to strengthen our faith, to bring those who don't yet know you to saving faith in Christ, to encourage the saints in their walk with you. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You'll notice our sermon text this morning literally picks up in the middle of, uh, in the middle of a story, in the middle of an event, in the middle of a passage. It's uh, a lot like um, a TV series that, that lets off with a, a cliffhanger of some sort or that, that stops one week only to make you wait a week uh, before you come back and hear how the the rest of the story played out, how the rest of the events unfolded. And if you recall, Paul has been um, grabbed, beaten, battered, kicked, stomped, probably spit on uh, in the temple by uh, an angry mob of Jews who were accusing him of of misusing the temple, of mistreating the temple, of actually technically bringing a Gentile beyond the, the Gentile court, beyond the wall, beyond the gate where Gentiles ought not be. And, and you can look back in the previous section, just back up a few verses and see that people got caught up in this mob and, and didn't even really know why they were mobbing. They didn't even really know why what they were doing, because when the tribune tried to find out what was going on, verse 34, some said one thing, some said another. They didn't even know why they were all worked up in this mob. The one thing that the tribune could tell that Paul seemed to be the, the denom common denominator in uh, these events, and so he grabbed Paul and carried him off, and, and you can even see as they're heading into the barracks, which are right next door to the temple, uh, Rome had put a, the, the um, barracks of Antonius, um, barracks I don't think is the right word, but right next to the temple, right there, so that they could maintain order and peace uh, there on the temple grounds. They're actually, soldiers are actually carrying Paul, presumably because of the violence, well, because of the violence of the crowd, presumably that indicates both Paul's own injuries and therefore probably his weakness, as well as just the anger of the mob itself, continuing to press and to press and to press against Paul. And it's partly for Paul's own safety and partly because, as we saw right there in verse 24, partly because the Roman soldiers wanted to examine Paul themselves and use their own methods, even if that means flogging, uh, until they got information out of him. And that, verse 37, is when Paul spoke. The, the tribune is thrown for a loop when Paul turns to him 
um, and asks permission to speak. I, I would imagine that at some level, uh, that didn't happen very often. Uh, not many people um, who had been beaten and kicked and stomped on um, wanted to then turn around and address the very people that were um, doing that to him, that were treating him like that. So I imagine the Tribune was a little surprised um, that Paul would want that opportunity. But he's also surprised at Paul's grief. See, he thought he was arresting an Egyptian. It turns out just a, not too long before this, uh, a couple of years before this, an Egyptian had come into Jerusalem and led an uprising and gathered thousands of people to him and had, had prophesied, sort of um, claimed to be a, a new uh, Moses, a new Joshua, and, and was prophesying that, that if they could just march around Jerusalem, the walls of the city would fall in just like it had happened in Jericho. Felix, the, the governor at the time, uh, still the governor now, um, had, had managed to, to put down that uprising, had managed to uh, arrest or kill a number of this Egyptian man's assassins. However, their ringleader escaped. And so I have this sense that the Tribune envisions a rather handsome um, reward, uh, promotion to come once he shows up uh, to Governor Felix with this Egyptian. That's part of the reason he's prepared to flog him. We'll see next week. Um, beating a Roman citizen was against the law. It was a violation of the law. So he was prepared. He assumed he had this Egyptian leader and was prepared to uh, treat him as that Egyptian leader. And in all likelihood, he assumes uh, he will be rewarded handsomely by those in authority over him. Paul, however, has uh, flawless Greek. Uh, he is from Tarsus of Cilicia. He was raised there. Yes, he's Jewish, but he was raised in a Greek-speaking, uh, born in, in a, in a Greek-speaking um, house. He's, he's learned, he's been educated, he's an educated man, and he speaks uh, rather um, eloquent Greek. Um, which caught the Tribune by surprise. And so the Tribune gave Paul permission to address the crowd. And you can imagine swollen, bloodied, um, bruised, um, battered by this crowd. Paul begins to speak, and now he changes the language, you notice, um, in verse 40, and then again, in verse uh, 2, we're told that he addressed them in the Hebrew language. It may have been Aramaic. It may have been uh, Hebrew itself. Either way, it was a common enough um, language dialect that the crowd understood exactly what he was saying. The soldiers, on the other hand, think they're watching one of those foreign films without subtitles. Uh, they have no idea what's going on. All they can do is watch facial reactions and and watch Paul's body language and the body language of, of the people. Um, they don't know uh, apparently what, um, what Paul is saying to the crowd. Now it's important to remember again, to be reminded again, why Paul had been beaten 
by this Jewish mob. And, and the heart of the matter is he was accused of not caring about the temple, about the people, uh, or about Moses, about the customs, the, the laws of the Old Testament. He was accused of being less Jewish than the Jewish people around him, right? I mean, that's, that's the heart of the matter. If you disdain the temple, the people, and the law of Moses, the customs of the Old Testament, then you're denying your Jewishness. And so the crowd is saying, look, we are zealous for our Jewishness, and you're not. And so in light of that, notice the way Paul addresses the crowd. And brothers and fathers sounds formal, but it's also a way of, of identifying with the audience, with the people. I'm one of you. You are my brothers. You are my fathers. I'm, I belong to you. And so Paul identifies with his accusers. But notice the rest of the story. Notice how in verses 3 to 5 in particular, uh, Paul begins his defense, and in it, he shows us that the persecuted was once the persecutor. Look at verse 3. He's, he's a Jew. He's born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but he was brought up and raised in Jerusalem. His parents had apparently for their own safety fled Jerusalem sometime before he was born. Um, he wasn't raised there. He wasn't educated there in Tarsus, but here in Jerusalem. In fact, right here in the passage, they're, they're, they're right there by the temple. He was raised uh, and, and taught and trained and learned and grew, spent his, uh, his school days right there. And as he unfolds his story, we learn if you think the crowd was zealous for God, Paul was more so. In fact, we, we learn as much here. We learn as much in Philippians. We learn in several other places. He went to really what amounts to the Harvard Law School of Judaism, of Jewish education, studying, studying under Gamaliel, the Pharisee. We've seen Gamaliel before. Back in Acts chapter 5, when the council grabbed Peter and John and had them there and uh, kept telling them, quit preaching Jesus, quit preaching Jesus, quit preaching Jesus. Gamaliel, was, is, the, Gamaliel is the one that had them, you know, remove Peter and John, removed from the council. And he said, look, we've seen people like this before. We've already had a few of these kinds of people. They've, they've come in, they've started this following, and then it dies. If it's if it's not from God, it will die just like all those others have. If this is from God, then we run the risk of being opposed to the work that God is doing, and that doesn't seem wise to Gamaliel. That was that was Gamaliel. He didn't didn't he didn't want to uh, to to squash to punish something that may very well be coming from God. And if it's not, it's going to die again anyway, just like the others had. And so Gamaliel, who had that kind of influence on the Jewish council, that's Paul's tutor. That's where Paul studied 
growing up. That was his professor. And, and as you read verses three to five, it, it almost sounds a little like, you know, the song that almost made it into Andy, get your gun, you know, anything you can do, I used to do better. Um, and, and that's Paul's story. He's, he describes his experience, he describes his practice, his background, and he, d- he does so as evidence of his own zeal for the temple, for the people, and for the law, the customs. There were people in the crowd that probably knew this information. It's been something like 25 years since Paul uh, since Paul's conversion. But he even says as much, the, the high priest and the council, they, they can bear witness to what I'm telling you. When Stephen was stoned, I was the coat check guy. I was approving of his stoning. I was approving of him being put to death. I was the guy that kept the coat closet. And, and I guarded the coats while everybody else was throwing stones at Stephen. Paul persecuted the way. The way was the, the original term for uh, believers. They weren't taught, called Christians until uh, Antioch in Acts chapter 11. Before that, um, they were followers of the way. They were the way. Um, was the, the language, the term given to the church, given to Christians back before Antioch in Acts 11. And if you'll notice, it seems that if you look back at verse 27 of chapter 21, it was, it was outsiders, it was foreigners. It was Jews from Asia, probably Ephesus or some area around there, who saw Paul in the temple and began the riot and started the riot. And so Paul unfolds for his accusers, for his attackers, his own Jewishness, his own obedience to the law. And he, in essence, looks at this crowd and says, you're a bunch of lightweights. Anything you can do, I used to do a whole lot better. See, Paul didn't limit his persecution just to the temple. He didn't limit his persecution just to Jerusalem. He went to the council and had letters written granting him permission not just to to arrest and even kill Christians in Jerusalem, but to travel to foreign synagogues and find Christians there in those cities and bring them back to Jerusalem and arrest them and beat them and perhaps kill them as well. See, in Paul's mind, The Jews that had come to saving faith in Christ were infidels. They were abandoning the Old Testament. They were abandoning the faith. And so men and women alike, he arrested and threw them in prison. Anything this crowd can do, Paul used to do better. 
you know, in many ways, it's not unlike those conversations that you have uh, when you uh, get caught up in um, heritage and ancestry sort of conversation and you rattle off, yeah, well, I had, you know, four or five, six uh, direct ancestors fighting in the Civil War, some on both sides. I had four or five or six direct ancestors fighting in the Revolutionary War, and we're related to, to this clan from Scotland or from England or whatever. We, we can do the ancestry conversation with the best of them. We can trace uh, our past. We can trace our heritage with the best of them. And that's what Paul is doing here. His Jewishness, both in ancestry and in practice, could not be challenged. It's not mentioned here, but in other places, he tells us, you know, I can trace my genealogy to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I know which of the 12 sons, it's Benjamin. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. His Jewishness cannot be challenged. However, the persecutor, uh, the persecuted used to be the persecutor. But we see what happens in verses 6 through 16. The persecutor becomes the proselyte. Paul's on his way to Damascus, and we've seen this once already in Acts 9. We'll see it again in just a few chapters as Paul retells his story uh, again to um, a slightly different audience. Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's en route to gather, collect, uh, find Christians, followers of the way, and to persecute them. They are infidels. Uh, they are blasphemer, blasphemers, um, and they need to be duly, properly, thoroughly, quickly punished for it. And while traveling to Damascus in the middle of the day, he sees a bright light, and it's noon, and so it's a bright light brighter than the noonday sun, and at the same time, he hears the voice speaking to him, and it's Jesus. Um, of course, his travel companions could see the light, and they could hear sound, but they couldn't make out the voice. They didn't know exactly what Paul was hearing, so they didn't understand all that Paul was going through, but notice what that voice said in verse 7. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Believer, you would do well to spend some time on that sentence. Paul's not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting believers. He's persecuting the way. He has no idea that he's persecuting Jesus. Christian, when you are persecuted for your faith, now, I'm not talking about those times when you're just mean, when you're just a jerk, and you're unloving, and you're unkind, and unfortunately, we have those times. I'm talking about those times when you're actually persecuted for your faith. And again, you've got to say, well, we live in the United States. We, we have persecution in some form or fashion, but it isn't exactly the same thing as members of the church in China who are participating in 
virtual church just like you and I are. And the government's coming in and arresting them and taking them out and throwing them in prison because of their faith. But here's the thing. When you're persecuted on account of Christ, Jesus so identifies with you. He so identifies with his people that when we are persecuted on his account for his sake, Jesus himself is the one being persecuted. Jesus doesn't say, why are you doing this to my church? Why are you doing this to my people? He says, why are you doing this to me? Believer, be comforted, be encouraged. This is, this is comforting and encouraging to us because Christ identifies with you so intimately, so tightly that when you are persecuted for your faith, Jesus says, you're attacking me. And so Paul begins to recount for this crowd, this, this mob that's gathered around him, that still amazingly is silent, listening to every single word. And, and so far, they're okay with everything that they have heard. But he's recounting for them the story of his conversion, the story of his uh, interaction with this light, uh, his own blindness. His, he had to be led by the hand to Damascus, to the home of Ananias, not Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias, but a different Ananias. How he received his sight back through God's power, through uh, this, this person, this man, Ananias. How he was baptized for forgiveness of sins and um, called on the name of Christ. He tells them, it's his testimony of saving faith in Christ. This is how I was brought to trust and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The persecutor has become the proselyte. What's amazing is, just to make one application right here, to pause and make this application because it needs to be made. Paul is on the way to persecute believers. Just hours before, persecuting the very people he now identifies with, by the end of verse 16, at least, you know, 25 years ago. There's no way to read this passage as Paul looking for, or the passage in Acts 9, or again in Acts 26, that Paul was out looking for Jesus and found him. Paul wasn't looking for God. He thought he was right with God. He was not on a mission to find God, and boy, sure is glad he's that, you know, he was smart enough and to exercise his own free will and trust in Jesus. You know, that's the prevailing view of salvation today. If you'll just offer people Jesus and then urge them to trust in him, then, then they've used, they've exercised their own free will, their own smarts to 
um, to trust the message that they've heard uh, as Christ, as their substitute in life and in death. The implication is that, that we're all out there trying to find Jesus and like a really long game of hide and seek. Um, Jesus is sort of around and you have to find him. And, and when you come face to face, face to face with him and you're, you're smart enough, you exercise your own free will and you believe on Jesus. Paul is trying to kill Christians. He thinks he's fine in his relationship. In fact, he thinks he's quite better than everyone else in his relationship with God. He had a letter with permission to arrest and, and punish believers for their apostasy, for their infidelity to the temple, the people, and the customs of Moses. And yet Christ in his sovereignty took hold of Paul and brought him to saving faith in Christ. Paul would sing the hymn, the hymn writer, the, the, the writer of the hymn is, uh, remains unknown, but Paul would sing the hymn. It's in our hymn book, hymn 466. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. God is sovereign over everything. We say this all that we say God's in control. And what we mean is, well, of most things. And what the Bible says is God's actually in control of everything. God is sovereign even over bringing men to saving faith in Christ. May I even sort of add a application part B to that one? This is why we pray for people to come to saving faith. Why would we pray? Except that we're asking God to do something that we know those people can't and won't do without the Spirit first changing their hearts and drawing them to saving faith in Christ. The persecuted was the persecutor. The persecutor became the proselyte, but then the proselyte became the preacher. Paul's conversion doesn't stop. Verse 15, 16, with his coming to saving faith in Christ. It doesn't end there. The story doesn't stop there. No, it goes on. Look at verse 15. You will be a witness for him, for Christ, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Or look at verse 18. Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Uh, this time Paul's in the temple. He's back in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He falls into a trance, and Christ appears to him and reveals himself to him, reveals his will to him. Get out of Jerusalem. You're in trouble. They won't believe the gospel from your lips. It appears, according to James, just in the beginning of the previous chapter, there are thousands in Jerusalem who believe the gospel, not from Paul's lips, but from Peter's, from James's, and who knows who else. Paul is called not just to saving faith in Christ, but he's also called to be an ambassador for Christ. In fact, verse 21, Paul used the magic word. 
Paul's a smart man. Paul knows how to read a room. Paul knows his audience. He knows the people that are listening to him. He knows the, the information they need to hear. He knows the pieces of the puzzle to give them that they can be putting the puzzle together to understand, but he also knows trigger words. He also knows that if he talks about this, the resurrection among Sadducees, it'll cause an uproar. That if he'll talk about Gentiles amidst a bunch of a mob of Jews, it'll cause trouble. And in verse 21, he tells them, you know, Jesus also told me to go, for I will send you to the Gentiles. Paul's going to be the preacher to the Gentiles. And that, of course, is why the Jews react. That's why we read verses 22 to 24. It seems odd with the division in your Bible the way it is. We wanted their reaction. I wanted us to see that with that, they stick fingers in their ears. They scream and yell. He should die. The earth doesn't even need to have Paul on it any longer. Uh, they're, they're kicking up dust. They're taking off their cloaks and stirring up dust. Uh, it, it seems that they're getting ready to stone him. That, that, that communicates the activity, freeing their arms, grabbing stones, whatever they can, so that they can stone Paul for this. He knew that instruction would cause an uproar. It's true, of course, Paul was sent as a missionary to the Gentiles, but he's, under, he's understanding that he's taking the gospel message to which the Old Testament actually testifies which the New Testament confirms and affirms for us to the nations, to the Gentiles. We read as much even in our call to worship from Malachi chapter 1, which envisioned the nations as subject to Christ. They, however, are convinced that he's blaspheming Paul's point, of course, is he's not an infidel. He's not apostate. He hasn't punted the faith completely. In fact, just the opposite. He now understands the Old Testament better. He understands the temple and the people and the customs of Moses more perfectly as they were intended to be understood from the start. We, uh, you'll hear us say from time to time, um, the, the old is in the new the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed, talking about the old and new testaments. And Paul says, look, I understand it now. I actually understand clearly all that Moses talked about, all that this temple pointed to, all the, the people wasn't just a nation. It wasn't just us, Israel, as a nation, but it's those who are looking in faith to Christ. God's kingdom extends beyond the borders of Israel to all nations, to any and all who will call on the name of the Lord. The persecutor of Christ has become the preacher of Christ. Let me ask you this. What are you trusting in or who? In whom are you trusting? In what? are you 
trusting. See, these Jews, like Paul 25 plus years ago, thought they were righteous. They thought they were bringing their Jewishness, their zealousness, their obedience, their faithfulness to God so that God would accept them and perhaps even reward them greatly for their obedience. Paul says, look, I was better at being zealous than you are. Anything you are doing right now, I used to do and infinitely, significantly better. But look at verse 14. Paul, despite all his Jewishness, despite his, all his reasons to boast in the flesh, had nothing to boast in. Why? Verse 14, because he came face to face with the righteous one. Even if we had a righteousness of our own, even if we had a 90 average, when you come face to face with the righteous one, the son of God, who's come in the flesh and, and taken on flesh that he might be a man and live a sinless, righteous, perfect life before the law. According to the customs of Moses, as revealed in the Old Testament, and yet who would bleed and die for sins he didn't commit and defeat death itself by rising again on the third day. When you look at perfect righteousness in Christ, when you look at the righteous one, you realize just how unrighteous you really are. Oh, oh but, but my parents are Christians. Oh, but I've been a Presbyterian my whole life. Oh, but my dad's a preacher. Oh, but, but I mean, I go to Sunday school. Oh, but I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Oh, but none of these things will gain favor with God. Paul's spotless, spotless Jewish record gained him nothing. We need a righteousness that comes not from within, but from without, not from in ourselves, but from the righteous one. Salvation is found in Christ and him alone. But let me also make this application. And I've, I've said it before, I've used it before. Uh, some of you have, have found comfort and hope in it and, and quoted it back to me from time to time, but it seems fitting in this passage. Do you know people that you've decided are just too far gone? Do you know people that just from all intents, you, you look at their lives, you watch them, you listen to the way they talk, and you just are convinced, I mean, they're not only not looking for Jesus, they're running away from him and they have no interest and they are hardened to the gospel. And I try to talk about Christ and they put up a wall and it's just a waste of time. And they're just too wicked. They're just too evil. They're just too far gone. They're just too committed to their own way of life, uh, to living for themselves and not for, for God. They're not even remotely interested in the gospel. 
that was Paul. And yet here he is. Let me encourage you. God's arm is not too short. To use the language of the Old Testament. He can reach and save even the worst of sinners, which is exactly what Paul will call himself in a letter written later after this from Rome, from prison, in just a few years. Look to Christ for your salvation and pray to Christ for the salvation of the lost. Even the most hardened, anti-Christian person you know, anti-Christ person you know, can be brought to saving faith by God's grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the grace that saved Paul, uh, that he might write, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so much of the New Testament uh, that we need so that we might hear and know and understand the gospel, so that we might be encouraged in our faith and our walk with Christ. We thank you for the grace that has saved us from our sin. We thank you for the grace that is not too weak for the most wicked neighbor, relative that we know. And we thank you for your grace that grows us, uh, that sanctifies us, that is at work in us now that we might be more and more subdued to and by the will of God revealed to us in Scripture. Father, we pray that we would look to Christ for our salvation. We would honor and glorify and praise Him for our salvation and not seek the credit for ourselves. And Father, we pray for those loved ones that we know, those neighbors, those unbelieving friends and family, co-workers that we have. Would you bring them to saving faith? Would you extend your arm, grab hold of their heart, remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they might receive and embrace the gospel. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Salvation is all of grace. And so let's sing together uh, hymn 460, Amazing Grace. <laughs>